What, what an incredible story about the power and the value of God's word um, taking place in one of our international church plants. And I would just remind you, Summit Church, that is why we go, that is why we give, so that we encounter people like that all over the world. Uh, Summit Church, this is a uh, important and big weekend for us um, at all campuses. At the end of the message today, a few hundred people are going to be baptized, uh, Lord willing. Uh, the message itself is not on baptism, but last weekend we had um, more than 250 of you indicate that you want to be baptized, 171 of those making a first-time profession of faith. And so for many of you, that is going to happen today. Um, others of you did not turn in a card last week, but um, you're, you've never been baptized as an adult, as a profession of your faith. And today you're going to make that decision, or at least we're going to give you a a chance to, and uh, we're ready for you. As always, we've got um, a change of clothes for you. You've got this barrel-shaped black shorts and, and, and modest black shirts that you can change into, and we've got everything you'll need uh, to get dry and go home. But um, you've never made that decision to be baptized. We're going to give you a chance to do that today. We are on week number two of a series called Start, in which we're looking at the six most essential things that you need to master in order to thrive in the Christian life. Um, the first week was on the assurance of salvation. Um, this second week is about approaching the Bible in the right way. Uh, several years ago, I picked up a, a book in Barnes & Noble called The Year of Living Biblically. Um, it's not a Christian book. In fact, the author is agnostic who says, and I quote, I am officially Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way that Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant. Um, so if that tells you anything. Um, for an entire year, this guy attempted to follow every rule of the Bible as literally as possible. Um, first, what he did is he read the Bible cover to cover, writing down any directive that he saw. That included big things like the Ten Commandments. It also included lesser known things like, you know, the, 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 the regulations on diet and dress and all those kinds of things. So he tries to keep them all um, literally for a year while living in Manhattan. Um, as you can imagine, the outcome is pretty interesting. For example, uh, the book of Leviticus says that men should leave the edges of their beards unshaven. So this guy stops shaving and he ends up looking like uh, walking around downtown Manhattan like a, uh, somebody from Duck Dynasty or a member of ZZ Top. Um, he stops wearing clothes made out of any mixed fibers. He refuses to shake hands with women who might be ceremonially unclean. Uh, which, how do you determine that? Um, and this is one of my favorites. He tries to fling tiny pebbles at people without, notice, without them noticing in order to fulfill the command to stone adulterers, right? Um, he did all this for a year um, and kept a journal of it. This whole process almost drove his poor wife crazy. Uh, now, there are, of course, massive problems with that kind of approach to the Bible. Um, but I tell it to you because for me, it captures the intimidation that many people in our culture, and might I even say our church, the intimidation they feel when they approach the Bible. They don't even know how to begin to understand and apply it, they don't think. Um, in a recent article, get this, in a re recent article, 56% of Americans say that they believe the Bible is inspired and inerrant and the Word of God. 56%. Yet only 19% of Americans read it on any regular basis. <laughs> in other words, yep, I believe this book has all that I need to guide me in life, and I believe it comes directly from God. No, I don't, I don't read it. I mean, let me play a little bad cop, good cop pastor with you if I could. Bad cop, pastor. Um, girls, many of you have read the Twilight series through three times. You have read the entire Hunger Games series. You have never 
read the Bible cover to cover. Can you seriously look me in the face and tell me that you actually believe it is the Word of God? Guys, some of you have three fantasy football teams going right now. You can tell me every stat of every player. You can just spout it off without any thought whatsoever. Yet you could not quote me five verses on marriage or parenting from the Bible, and you could not find the book of Isaiah in the Bible without a table of contents if your life depended on it. Can you actually look me in the face and say, yep, I believe the Bible is the word of God? All right, that's bad cop, pastor. Here's good cop. Um, Let me try to understand why many of you don't read it. For some of you, it's just not that interesting. You've given it a try, but you just get stuck in stuff, and you're like, I just don't find it that interesting. Or for some of you, you feel like you can't understand it. Some of you are just too busy. In a world where everything has to compete for every second, um, the Bible just doesn't make the cut. Others of you have good intentions, you just forget. Some of you assume that um, I will explain to you everything you actually need to know about the Bible. So if you'll just come in here once out of every three weeks, I'll tell you what you need to know. Many of you look at the Bible the way that you look at um, the little terms and conditions thing when you get new Apple software and you just just, uh, accept, I agree. Right, and that's what you do with the Bible. You're like, I accept, I agree. I'm not actually reading that because if I read it, I might get stuck in some genealogy about Abimasham begetting Melchizedek, and I don't even know what that means. And so I'm not reading it. I'll just accept it. Now let somebody else tell me what's important out of there. Well, in this message, I want to show you what God says about the Bible. Um, I want to show you why, try to persuade you why you need to read it for yourself daily and then show you how you can go about getting the most out of it when you do. If you have a Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 30 is where I'd like for you to open. Deuteronomy 30, it's the fifth book in your Old Testament. You don't hear many sermons out of Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy is Moses's farewell sermon to the children of Israel. For 29 chapters, he has been preaching one really long sermon. And when he comes to chapter 30, he comes to the climactic conclusion of that sermon And like all good preachers, he makes three points, all right? Here is the first one. It's in verse 15. Moses says, see, I have set before you today life and death. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, verse 18, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Number one, Moses says, read the Bible as if your life depended on it. Read your Bible as if your life depended on it, because it does. I could not imagine him putting a more clear choice out in front of us. Submission to the word brings blessing. Departure from the word or even ignorance of the word brings cursing. Jesus would say something very similar. He compared those who hear the word of God and do it to a man who builds a house on a rock solid foundation. Um, When the storms come, uh, the storms go over that house, but the house is secure, and so the house stands. He compares the person who does not hear the word of God and do it to the one who builds their house on a sandy foundation. It looks the same, has the same specs, same features, but when the storm comes to this house, it crumbles and falls apart because it has no foundation that endures. What Jesus is saying, listen to this, is that there's a lot of people who have lives that fare just fine in fair weather. But then something happens, you go through a storm and a storm will inevitably come at some point and that storm is called disease. That storm is called loneliness. That storm is called job loss. 
And then all of a sudden, you got a life that begins to fall apart because you've never had the foundation to, be in, to endure that kind of storm. The difference in a life that endures, Moses says, and Jesus agrees, and one that crumbles is how securely it is built upon the Word of God. And I think, by the way, to make it really practical, I think you can extrapolate that principle and apply it to the various areas of your life. The stability of each part of your life depends on how well it is founded upon the Word of God. Have you learned to think through your vocation through the lens of Scripture? Have you learned to think through your finances? Have you learned to think through your marriage? Have you learned to think through your hobbies, toward your approach toward aging, to your approach toward health, to sex? Whatever part is not anchored into God's word is a part where the enemy can bring you down. It's the enemy where he sends that storm and he destroys that. I, I think of it like the game Jenga. You know the game Jenga where you get the blocks and you pull them out and see who knocks down the structure? My four-year-old son loves to play that game. And I think his favorite moment is the, the, the time when one of us knocks it down, especially if I'm the one that does it. He will get a look on his face that I don't see any other time in his life. He will stand up. He will jump. He will point. He'll go, ah, ha, ha. He'll point at me and he'll point at the structure. Um, sometimes I knock it down just to see him have that reaction. But what you got in Jenga is you got gradually removing one, one block at a time until the whole structure crumbles. Whatever part of you is not anchored into God's word becomes the place that the enemy begins to tap on to bring the entire structure down. What part of your life is right now most vulnerable to the enemy? Maybe you're sensing it right now. He's tapping on that because it's not anchored in God's word. It might be your retirement. It's not anchored into God's word. I'm raising four children. I want to do my best to teach them to anchor every part of their lives in the word of God. That is one of my greatest passions at this church for you parents, is that you would take responsibility to teach your kids the Bible. Unashamedly, I will tell you, I do not have my kids involved in nearly the amount of extracurricular stuff that um, the average American parent has their kids involved in. But I am making you, why? Because I'm freeing up time for relationships, but I'm also freeing up time so that they can learn the Bible. And if they don't know, grow up knowing everything there is to know about Taylor Swift and LeBron, but they can talk their way through 1 Timothy and Lamentations, I'll be just fine. Because yes, I care about where they go to college, but I care more about where they go to eternity. And so I'm going to make sure that I put into them the things that will give them life and bring God's blessing. Of course, what Moses is promising in this chapter is more than just stability. As if the Bible was the best how-to book there is on how to, you know, build a life or how to, you know, whatever, have a good marriage. He's actually talking about the blessing and the cursing of God. He's saying that your relationship to the Bible will determine the blessing or cursing of God in your life. In chapter 29, one chapter back, he's even clearer. Listen to this. Chapter 29, verse 19, beware, lest there be one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart. You know, instead of being blessed by God, you're going to bless yourself and say, I'll be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. You're, that, you're the one that's sitting there thinking, oh, I don't really know the Bible that well, but I'll be okay. He's like, all right, the Lord will not be willing to forgive you, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Do you realize how important this book is? This is not an idle word that the nerdier ones of you ought to learn and get into. This is your life. I cannot understand a father who is not devoted to the word of God, who thinks about being a protector to his children and doesn't know the one thing that brings the blessing of God. 
You see, the problem is not that most of you don't know that it's important. It's just you're just not doing anything about it. Right? I mean, I'll prove it to you. If I could offer you $500,000 right now in cash, $500,000, but the one condition was you could not touch, think about, hear, or read the Bible in your family ever again. Anybody here that's going to take me up on that offer and say, yep, $500,000, I will never touch the Bible again. I would say, especially for those of you that are Christians, there's no way you would take that. Okay, so you just identified the Bible as a $500,000 asset. Is there any other $500,000 asset in your life that you treat that carelessly? Oh, you got a house somewhere that's worth $500,000, you never pay any attention to it. You got a half a million dollars in the bank and you don't even check on it from time to time. Now see, the problem is not that you don't know it's valuable, the problem is you're not doing anything about that. By the way, even those of you that are not sure if it's the Word of God, you're not a Christian, but you're here. For most of you, if I offered you a half a million dollars to not touch the Bible, you wouldn't even take it. Because if there's a chance it might be the Word of God, you don't want to cut yourself off from it, not even for half a million dollars. You see, it makes sense, listen to this, it makes sense when somebody knows that it's not the Word of God and so doesn't pay any attention to it. It makes sense when somebody's not sure if it's the Word of God and so they spend their time devoted to figuring out whether that it is the Word of God or not. Um, that, that makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me is the person who says, I'm not sure if it's the word of God and I don't really care about the question. You don't care about the question, what do you? If it's the word of God, you gotta figure that out because that is what God is saying to you. It doesn't make sense to me, the person definitely doesn't make sense who says, yes, I believe it's the word of God, but I just don't take any time to learn it. The problem is not that you don't believe it's important, it's that you don't do anything about that. Um, here's the way I was thinking about it this week, you know, where a lot of us are kind of nervous because of the, you know, the Ebola stuff going on and nervous about what that, what if that comes to the United States? Imagine that um, the Department of Health developed a vaccine for um, Ebola and the way that they were going to distribute it is they were going to mail it to everybody's house. So you get yours in the mail, but it's a liquid form and it's really nasty and your kids hate it. So you just like, I'm gonna put it on the shelf and you don't worry about it. Well, driving home from work one day, um, you hear the radio announce that um, Ebola has come to Raleigh-Durham and it is spreading like wildfire through the schools as fast as anything they've seen spread. All of a sudden, driving home from work, right, you're not thinking, of, I mean, what you're thinking about is how quickly can I get home to get this into my kids to save their lives. This is what I think about when I think about the Bible because that is how God describes the world. It is a world filled with the poison of death it is uh, my kids have it already in them because they're born sinners and I've got to get the word of God in them because that is the only way that the blessing and the life of God will come upon them. Y'all, when Satan attacked Jesus, when Satan attacked Jesus, he quoted scripture. What are your kids gonna come up with when Satan attacks them? But I didn't say if, I, when Satan attacks them, what are they gonna come up with? Because he will and he is. The only way you can confront a lie is to know the truth. And if your kids don't know the truth, they will buy into the lie. You say, well, of course, Jesus knew scripture. He wrote it. <laughs> the New Testament, Gospel of Luke, goes to great pains to show you that Jesus was not born with scripture memorized. He had to learn it like everybody else. In other words, Jesus went to Awana too. <laughs> and he finished every book and he stuck around afterward for extra credit. Here's my point. It is not your understanding of how important God's word is that helps you or your kids. It's what you do with that understanding. It's whether you learn it. It's whether you obey it. Obedience to the word brings the blessing and cursing of God. 
And if you want the blessing and cursing of God on you, your marriage, your family, or anything that involves, you will make sure that it is grounded in God's word. Moses says, number two, read the Bible because God has not hidden what he wants us to know. God's not hidden what he wants us to know. Moses says in verse 11, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. You see, a lot of people feel like they can't possibly hope to understand the Bible. There's so many interpretations. I've heard that before. Sometimes the Bible says weird things. And I want to say this respectfully to the word of God. Um, but I want you to know that I understand where you're coming from in that. There are some verses that I read and I'm like, I have no idea what that's talking about. In fact, I've got, as I do my quiet time, read through the Bible, I have a little Evernote file. Where I, it's called Weird Verses. And I just will copy and paste weird verses into there just because I'm like, I have no idea what that means. Uh, I, I copied and pasted some of them in, into um, the sermon. I'll, I'll give you a few of, of my favorites. Nahum 3.5, I will lift up your skirt and show your nakedness to the nations. I'm like, how do you apply that? <laughs> Jeremiah 13, one and two this is one of my favorites. The Lord told me, go and buy a loincloth, put it on, but don't wash it. <laughs> Where was that verse when I was in middle school? I would live by that verse in middle school. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 7:28. I do know there is a good man in a thousand, but I've never found a good woman. <laughs> by the way, some of the girls around here tell me exactly the opposite. They're like, I know lots of good women, no good men. Um, I got 115. Anytime I'm at a, like a high school student camp and I, somebody brings up a book, one of the books I wrote for me to sign, I always sign my name and put Haggai 115. Haggai 115 says in the four and 20th day of the sixth month of Darius the king. Why? Because I want some middle school or high school back in their dorm room that going, what does it mean? What does it mean? Is there some kind of symbolism? What is he saying? Um, it, it, it's just details about months. Ecclesiastes 9.8. I love this one. Wear fine clothes with a dash of cologne. Some of you living biblically this morning. So yeah, I understand that there are some things in the Bible that can be befuddling. But Moses says, listen to it again. This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say who's going to go up to heaven and bring it down to us so we may hear it and do it. In other words, the meaning is not so mysterious and so lofty that you can't possibly hope to grasp it unless you have a PhD and you're super brilliant. Verse 13, neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who's going to go over the sea and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. In other words, it's not so culturally foreign to you that you can't possibly hope to know the meaning. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you can do it. It's right there. It's accessible. It's ready for you to grasp and obey. And by the way, note that when Moses says that, he's not talking to a group of seminary professors. He's not talking to a group of people who have you know, gone through Bible college. He's talking to ordinary people. He's talking to teenagers when he says that. You see, I have heard some say the Bible is so mysterious, we can't possibly hope to be certain about its meaning. God wrote several books a few years ago named Brian McLaren, who says that whenever you say you're sure about something the Bible teaches, that's a sign of pride and arrogance. That really what you ought to do is be humble enough to say, I don't really know what it means. And that sounds humble. And yeah, we should be humble about our interpretations, but that's not how the Bible describes itself. And if I'm always looking at God saying, I got no idea what you're saying, that may sound humble, but it's actually an insult to God. It'd be frustrating to you if I did that, wouldn't you? Every time you said something, I'm like, you know, I don't really know what you mean. I mean, you'd be like, I'm telling you, listen to the words coming out of my mouth. That's what God's saying. I made it plain. You're not humble when you do that. It's arrogant to tell God that he didn't know how to communicate. A guy named Rob Bell, you've heard of him, said the exact same thing. He's like, you know, we don't know a lot. 
The Bible is like a playground or a trampoline we bounce on in this adventure we call God. <laughs> and that's not how the Bible talks about itself. I've heard other people say that we are so culturally bound that we can't hope to understand the Bible. That all we end up doing is reading it through our 21st century American biases. And um, certainly we got to be cautious of that. Christians have done that in every generation where they twisted the Bible to fit their prejudices. But listen, that is not how the Bible talks about itself. The Bible is clear. What you need to know is clear. The core essential elements are accessible and they're accessible to common people. Jesus was asked a lot of questions during his earthly ministry. I've read all of them. And not one time when he was asked one of these questions did he ever say, you know, I understand. I understand why you're confused on that issue. The Old Testament is just so unclear on that. No, his response was always, haven't you read? At least six times in the midst of an argument, Jesus said to his opponents, have you not read? Suggesting that if they had just known the scriptures better, they would not be making the mistake that they're making. What you need to know, he says, is in the scriptures, then you're responsible to know what's in there and you're responsible to know what it means. By the way, he is not saying that you're going to understand everything. He's not saying there won't always be questions. He's saying that what you need to know for life and blessing is abundantly clear. You see, the problem is not that there are parts of the Bible you can't understand. The problem is that you won't heed and obey the parts that you do understand. Postmodern people say that you can't know the scriptures because they're ambiguous and opaque, that God has not spoken plainly. In truth, God has spoken plainly. We just don't like what he said. So we will make up the stuff about it being unclear to avoid the things that are obvious. And by the way, let me tell you a little secret. When you won't obey what is clear, then more and more the Bible becomes unclear because you begin to walk in darkness. The darkness is not in the Bible, the darkness is in you. All right, twice the Bible, twice Moses has told us now in our first two points, read the Bible. Here's our third point. Don't just read the Bible. Encounter the person within the Bible. Don't just read the Bible. Encounter the person within the Bible. Right at the end of his sermon, Moses' language takes a surprising turn. L listen to it. Verse 19. Today I have set before you life and death blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast. Watch this, holding fast to him for he is your life. Now, here is why I say that is a surprising twist. Up until this point, for 30 chapters, Moses has consistently said obedience to the word will be our life. And then here, Almost inexplicably, he suddenly switches to say, God is our life. You see that? He doesn't say hold fast to his word. He says hold fast to him. So which is it? Is it obedience to God's word that is our life? Or is it God himself that is our life? You say, well, I don't quite understand the distinction. Does gaining spiritual life, does gaining real life and God's blessing, does it depend on how well you obey the words of this book? That's the question. And it is a trick question. In one sense, yes, that's exactly what he said. Life comes by anchoring your life into God's word. But here is the dilemma. Do any of us truly keep God's word sufficiently to lay hold of this life and blessing? 
David would say that if you marked iniquities, who could stand? Paul would say, we've all together become unprofitable. There's not unrighteous, not even one. There's none who seeks God. All have sinned, Romans 3, 23, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us obey sufficiently to gain life and blessing. So as Moses comes to the very conclusion of his sermon, he starts to point to something else. He points beyond obedience to a hope that is greater than our ability to obey. And that hope is God himself who will become to us life and salvation. Ready to have your mind blown? Paul takes this passage and does something amazing with it. Watch this, Romans 10, 5 and 10. In Paul's explanation of the gospel, Romans 10, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. All right, he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. But the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So what he's saying is the ultimate fulfillment of this word is not something we're going to do for God. It's something that God's going to give to us. That if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus, the one that came down as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead as a substitute for our sin, then you will be saved because it's with the heart that man believes unto righteousness. Not that we obey unto righteousness, but we believe it and we receive it. With the mouth, confession is made to salvation. For whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. The one who's not going to experience shame is not the one who obeys sufficiently because that's none of us. The one who will not be put to shame is the one who hopes in God who will become righteousness to us. That word brings life and blessing. It's embodied in the word of the gospel. The gospel that declares that Christ has come to us. That he became our righteousness and our life and offered himself to us to be received as a gift. You see, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is not that you obey sufficiently that one day God lets you into heaven based on your obedience. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came and lived the life you could not live and then died the death in your place that you've been condemned to die so that if you would receive it by grace, you would be given the righteousness of God. So the primary purpose of the scriptures, listen to this, is to present Jesus. The primary purpose of the scriptures is not to give you a list of assignments. It is to tell you about the grace and salvation that you can receive and by which you can be restored to God. Scripture is not primarily a list of tasks about what he wants you to do for him. It's the glorious good news about what he's done for you. It's not marching orders about what we are supposed to do. It's an offer to be restored to relationship to God through the finished work of Christ. We often say the Bible is not good advice. The Bible is good news. And there's a big difference in those two. Most Christians, you see, most American Christians struggle to read the Bible because they see it like an assignment. Yet another thing that you got to do, put it on a checklist to earn God's favor. But when you do that, those things always become drudgery. They start to feel monotonous, like these religious rituals. I got to do this so that God will be happy with me. But it's not. That's not what the Bible is. It is the story of God's love for you, how he reached out himself to save you. And when you begin to read it that way, it, it starts to look totally different. The primary purpose of the scriptures, listen, is not to give you a how-to manual for different parts of your life. That's how a lot of you approach the Bible, and you struggle to understand it because you're like, well, I want to know, you know five ways to get along with my annoying husband. Well, what, what page is that on? I want to know three ways to think about you know, the pain in my life. I want to know 10 things I got to do to get ready for retirement. Where's that chapter? But then you get into the Bible and you find a genealogy or a list of sacrifices or the dimensions of the temple. Ever done your quiet time through that? 
And this curtain was this long, and then how high it was. You're like, oh, I don't know what that means. Um, page after page of the histories of people whose lives are of dubious moral character and who often have very little in common with you or your time. And so you throw up your hands in desperation and you say, what does this have to do with my life? Listen to this, Michael Reeves. But when you see that Christ is the subject of all the scriptures, that he is the word, the Lord, the son who reveals the father, the promised hope, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the great high priest, the ultimate king, then you can read, not so much asking, what does this mean for me right now, but what do I learn here of Jesus? Knowing that the Bible is about him and not about me means that instead of reading the Bible obsessing about me, I can gaze on him. And as through the pages you get caught up in the wonder of his story, you find your heart strangely pounding for him in a way you never would have if you treated the Bible as a book all about you. You see, the Bible will give you a lot of practical instructions on marriage. It'll give you a lot of practical instruction on child raising and how to you know, think about your vocation. That's why we teach it up in here 52 weeks out of the year. But the main way to life and peace is not by figuring out the secrets to the abundant life. Because the abundant life, listen, is not something Jesus explains to you how to, to do. The abundant life is Jesus himself. That's what he said, John 17, 3. I am the abundant life. This is the abundant life to know me. Some of you come to the Bible looking for the secret to an abundant marriage, an abundant family, an abundant vocation. Jesus says, I am the abundant life. And if you know me, then your life becomes abundant, not because these things all become perfect, but because you know me, you find it by knowing me. Learning five steps to a good marriage is not gonna do you nearly as much good as learning about the 10,000 steps that Jesus took toward you when he came to rescue you at the cross. Because when you learn that and you believe that, that will break your pride and your selfishness and it will make you a gracious person, which is the primary problem in your marriage anyway, is that you're a proud, selfish person. So it's not learning five things to do better in your marriage that's actually gonna change it. It's when that pride and that selfishness has been broken and that's not by learning five steps to how to be a better husband. It's learning about the 10 billion steps that Jesus took when he came to rescue you. Feeling the weight of God's love for you is what will fill that gaping chasm in your heart. It's what's going to, to take away your anger, not because it gives you three ways to cope with your anger, but because it makes it so that what happens at your job or with your friends or with your health or in your marriage, it's just not that devastating to you because you have something greater than health and a good job and even a good marriage, and that is fellowship with the almighty God who calls you son or daughter or friend, and that is the abundant life. So when you read the Bible, you gotta read it the right way. Don't read it to gain favor with God, as if God's gonna look on you more favorably because you read it this morning. <laughs> Jesus has made you fully acceptable on the cross. There's nothing you can do to add to that. God's not going, oh yeah, Jesus died for that person, shed his blood, rose from the dead, and they read their Bible this morning. I'm feeling good about that person. You can't add to that. You are complete in Christ, right? So don't read it to gain favor with God. Don't read it as a book of how-tos for your life. Read it primarily as a presentation of a glorious savior to get to know. Page after page of declarations of the father's love for you. The marvelous way he came to earth to take away your condemnation by living the life you were supposed to live, dying in your place and restoring you to full fellowship with God. I've heard the Bible described before like one of those magic eye puzzles. You know, you've seen those where you stare at them for 
like 15, 20 minutes and there's a bunch of people around. It's this big mass of dots and everybody's claiming to see the man that's, you know, in the dots and you end up lying about it, your ability to see it, even though you can't really see it. And then later you come back when nobody's there and stare at it for about 30 minutes, or maybe I'm telling my own story, um, but you stare at it for a long time. And all of a sudden that man comes out of those dots. You remember this? The man comes out of the dots and then you can't look at that picture and not see the man. It's no longer a meaningless morass of dots. It is a man that is in that picture. That's what reading the Bible is like. It suddenly goes from being a, a collection of details and genealogies and stories to being the presentation of Christ. And when that happens, you'll never read it the same. C.S. Lewis said that when his life was radically transformed was when he, he said, he said, he said it was like I was reading the Bible, staring through a peephole and suddenly having somebody stare back at me. Now, staring through a peephole was creepy enough as it is. Having somebody stare back at you is really, really creepy. Screepy. Experiencing in the Bible the living, moving Son of God. That's why Lewis said, don't just read the Bible. You got to let the Bible read you. Which is why I will tell you, you got to read it every day. Because the Word of God, when you read it, the Spirit of God takes it and makes it personal to you. What promise do you need? What warning do you need? That's why you can't just depend on me to explain it to you. Why? Because I got to preach to 9,000 people every weekend. I cannot always tailor the Bible to your situation. So you come here and be like, well, I didn't get anything out of the pastor's sermon today. Well, maybe there's 8,999 other people that needed to hear something besides just you. So maybe you shouldn't be so narcissistic and self-centered and not depend on me to spoon feed you what God wants you to know. There are some times that I'm going to preach and it's going to be right for your situation. But the majority of what God says to you should come as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God as you got the Bible open in the morning or at night, and He is speaking those words to you. See, it's not me. I can't do it. you got to do it. So don't be a sermon hog. Right, write that down. In fact, let me correct a wrong analogy that I heard over the years, one that I've used. Um, read the Bible like a love letter. That was the, the wrong analogy. I've heard that. I've used that. Here's the problem with that analogy. A letter comes from far away. The person sends it to you because they're not with you. That is not how the Bible talks about itself. This is not a far off God who's sending us some instructions. Jesus said, these words are spirit. They are life. As you read them, you commune with me. I will make them personal to you. This is no letter. This is me in my word speaking to you. So let me bring this to a conclusion. I leave you with two things in this, two things at least that are impressed upon my heart. One is a choice. One is a choice. You got a clear choice between life and death. No, can I make this any plainer? If you ground your life, if you ground your family in the word of God, you and your family will live. If you do not, then you will die. You got to make that choice and then you got to act on that choice. You see, for many of you, it's not a lack of good intentions. It's a lack of good habits. When you came in, we gave you this. We give you this about every three months. We're making a slight adjustment this year. You ought to pull it out. This is our daily Bible reading plan. Um, we, it's on Twitter, at readthebiblerdu.com, or no, Twitter is at readthebiblerdu. Um, at summitrdu.com, you can find out more about it. But we give you this once every three months to put in your Bible so that we're all kind of reading the same thing. Um, this is part of, here's the change we're making. This is part of the one-year Bible reading plan. The one-year Bible reading plan is what I use every morning. It's got, sex, it's got a little section from all the different parts of Scripture. And I read from some of the Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, Proverbs. Um, this is just the New Testament portion of that. 
Um, if you want the whole thing, and for you more mature Christians, I would do that. This, you can get this at the next step. This is the whole thing. Um, and you can read the Bible through in a year. But if you're new, if you're new to the Bible, I just encourage you to take this and start to read the New Testament portion. If there's somebody in your life that you're trying to get to start to read the Bible with you, give them this and y'all read the passages. And then once a week, you get together and discuss what you're learning. That's a great way to start to disciple somebody. So you need to make this a part of your life. You say, well, what does that look like? How do you, um, I do it in the mornings. Um, I, I wouldn't say most of you ought to do it in the mornings. Maybe you're a night person, but um, I do, I break mine up into three sections of 15. So it's a total of 45 minutes, 15 minutes in the word, 15 minutes um, praying um, through a list of things that I pray about every day. And then 15 minutes where I, I'm either memorizing scripture or I'm into a, a good Christian devotional kind of book. Um, maybe that's too long for you. If you're, you've never done this, you could do three sets of 10. Shoot, you could do three sets of five. Um, whatever it is, you gotta start. You gotta start somewhere. You gotta daily get with God so that he speaks life into you. And by the way, dads, I cannot fathom being a dad and not being devoted to knowing the Bible just out of love for my children. I think of it like, you know, on the airplane, when they say that, you know, if it goes through some kind of turbulence and the mass drops out, they always say, put it on yourself first. That's not selfish. Because if I put it on myself, then I can help my kids with it. You got to know the Bible so that you can put the mask on them. And if you don't have the mask on you, you'll never be able to get it onto them. You got to devote yourself to the scripture because that's the place that God has put you. I want you to choose life. And I want you to choose life and then act on it by beginning a daily time in God's word. Our small group's gonna go even deeper in this, but you've got enough to get started. The second thing that I, this leaves me with is a burden. It leaves me with a burden as I read Moses's phrase. See, the word of God is near you, it's in your mouth and your heart, it's not across the sea. You know what I think about? I think about people like the video we saw at the beginning. For God, that guy and people like him, it is across the sea. That's literally where it is. It's not in his mouth and his heart because he's never heard it. And I think about the urgency that that fills me with knowing that I have life itself. And there's no way Paul would say in Romans 10, after quoting that passage, he's gonna say, how can they call, can they call on the one they've never heard about? How can they find life if they don't know the name that gives them life? How will they hear unless we go? That's why we go, because I have life. I got a friend right now who um, is uh, developed this technology. It's, a re it's really impressive. Someone's really gonna assist doctors in the operating room in a certain kind of surgery. Um, technology's been proven to work, but uh, a friend of his, an old partner, has figured out some way to get a legal claim on part of it just because he wants some of the money from it. And for three years, this product has not been able to get to market because it's been tied up in a court battle, um, a meaningless court battle. And my friend tells me, he says, what's frustrating to me is not just the loss of revenue for these three years, although that is frustrating. He said, what's really frustrating is for three years, people are suffering in these operations because they can't get to this technology because somebody has it tied up. It's there, it works, but we can't get it out there because of this court battle. I hear him say that and I think there's nothing that's stopping me from giving out life. There's no, he's not tied up in court. God's word is in my mouth and in my heart. It's just, I gotta go speak it. You gotta speak it to people that haven't heard it. What if you had the cure for cancer? What if you had the cure for Ebola? and you just kept it in your pocket, never said anything. How cruel. That's where you and I are with these words of life. So we gotta go across the sea or across the street. 
and speak and put it in their mouth and their heart so it's ready for them to obey, believe, and thereby have life. Why don't you bow your heads if you would? Bow your heads. Let me think you about what the Spirit of God might be saying to you right now about your relationship to the Word. As He convicted you about starting a daily time with Him, then right now say, God, I'm going to do that. Promise Him you'll do it for a month. God, I'm going to start and do it for a month. Maybe He's put somebody in your heart that you need to speak the Bible to, the Word of God to, and so right now pray for that person. God, I pray that we would be a people, a church, saturated by the Word, filled with the Word. God, that speaks your Word and experiences life and brings life to others. I pray, God, and ask that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look up here at me, at all of our campuses, we're going to transition now, and we're going to do what I told you at the very beginning of the message. I'm going to give a chance for many of you to respond. Um, to be baptized. Like I said, there were 250 or so of you last week that indicated your desire. Uh, Most of you we've been able to follow up with this week, and many of you are ready. So in just a minute, I'm going to tell you to stand at all campuses, and as you stand, those of you that are going to be baptized, you're going to step into the aisles and make your way forward. There's going to be counselors down here ready to talk you through, walk you through the process, and you're going to get baptized this morning. Like I said at the beginning, there are some of you that um, didn't turn in a card last week. Maybe you weren't here, or maybe you just weren't ready but you know you need to be baptized. And we're gonna give you a chance too to make that decision. Baptism is the public declaration of your faith. It is something the Bible tells us we do as an adult to declare our own faith. It's not a declaration of our parents' faith when they baptized us when they were kids. That's awesome, I'm glad that happened, but it's a declaration of your own faith. If you've never done that, we wanna give you a chance to do that. So we'll do this from time to time, and every time we do it, we have usually a couple hundred people that will respond to that. For some of you, that's you. I don't want you to bring up any excuses. We got all the things that you need. We are professionals at this. There ain't nothing that you need, any kind of hair product that we don't already have and have taken care of. So in just a minute, I want you, regardless of whether you came prepared this weekend or not, um, at all campuses, when I stand you up, you're gonna stand, move into the aisle, and you're gonna come down. Um, It's Jesus's first command to every disciple, declare it by being baptized. If you've never done that, it's time for you to take that first step of obedience. If you've never taken that step and you're not willing to, I've got to very humbly ask you, are you serious about being a disciple if you're not going to obey his first command? So this weekend is the time for you to to make that choice and to obey. Um, So at all campuses, in just a second, I'm going to stand you up. When I stand you up, make it one motion, stand and step. The person beside you will move out and let you by. And uh, you bring a friend with you if you want, bring a whole row if you want, all right? You come down here, we'll have counselors at every campus ready to talk to you. And if you got questions, we'll try to answer them. And if you don't want to get baptized after we talk, then you can, there's plenty of off-ramps for you to, uh, to, to, to not do it, all right? Don't wait, don't hesitate, don't wait on somebody else. You stand and step all in one motion. Are we ready? Summit Church, all campuses, right now, if we would, let's stand together. If you're going to come to be baptized, you step, make your way into the aisles, and you come down and meet one of our pastoral team and counselors down here.